BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. But I wanted to start with a piece that I had a couple hours free on Sunday. So I just banged out this op-ed, but I actually called Bob Ney. And Bob is in India right now, uh, hanging out with the Dalai Lama, as he does. This is uh, his way of keeping sane these days. And wow, having the ability to do that would be really sweet. So anyway, I called him up and I said, you know, what's the deal with the Help America Vote Act? I mean, we are looking at what happened with the election with Stacey Abrams. And, you know, I think, frankly, she would have won. I mean, you know, the margin of victory that Brian Kemp claimed was, as I recall, 51,000 votes. And he kept 55,000 people who were newly registered, about 70 to 80 percent of them African-Americans, kept them off the voting rolls, wouldn't let them vote. And, uh, you know, Greg Palace has got all this video you can see over his website, gregpalace.com, of uh, black people trying to vote in Georgia and literally being told that they wouldn't even give them a provisional ballot. So, you know, I was reading these stories and I looked up the Help America Vote Act, also known as H.R. 3295. And this was in 2002 because the whole provisional ballot thing came out of the Help America Vote Act. So I read the Help America Vote Act. I just I was in one particularly boring session at this meeting that I was at. And so I just sat there and read it on my phone. It's only 60 pages long and it's in fairly plain English. And the Help America Vote Act specifically, explicitly says if somebody shows up and they're not on the voting rolls or they don't have identification, you still have to give them a provisional ballot and that it's up to the election officials, the secretary of state or the local election officials to put in the effort to prove that you are or are not a legitimate voter whose ballot should be countered. It's not up to you. So the the Help America Vote Act has not created this old kind of Napoleonic code of guilty until proven innocent, or it really was feudal Europe. This was from you know, the six and seven hundreds through the 1700s in Europe, in much of, in most of Europe, certainly up to the 15 and 1600s in Europe. I mean, some of this got blown up, arguably even back in the 11th century by the Magna Carta. So the way that our elections are being run right now 
you're guilty and you have to prove your own innocence. And this is just wrong. This is in defiance of the historic norms of due process. Came out of the Enlightenment, due process, innocent until proven guilty. And it's the obligation of the state to prove that you're guilty. It's not your obligation to prove that you're innocent, or at least in theory. So, you know, I read the Help America Vote Act and I was like, whoa, this doesn't seem so bad. But how are these guys like Brian Kemp getting away with basically breaking this law? And, you know, reading the law, unless I missed something, I didn't see anything in there about criminal provisions, about anybody being prosecuted for breaking the law. So anyhow, I called up Bob in India and uh, said, what's the story here? What's the real story? Because it seems to me like this is, you know, it was right after the Help America Vote Act was passed in 2002. It was in 2003 and in the 2004 election, the John Kerry versus George Bush election, that we first started hearing Republicans saying, I mean, in a big way, they'd been saying this forever, but, but in a big way, you know, spreading these conspiracy theories that there were people voting who were not eligible voters, who were not even Americans, that it was mostly Hispanic immigrants who were voting for whatever reason, and that's why every now and then a Democrat would win. So anyway, I called up Bob, and Bob said, you know, well, here's where it started. He said, after the whole hanging Chad debacle and everything, Steny Hoyer, who is the number two Democrat in the House of Representatives under Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer came to me and said, hey, you know, let's together write this bill and create some national standards for voting. Well, now we know that we can have national standards for voting. We did this in 2002. And so I said, well, you realize how it's being, how provisional ballots are being used now. They're being used as placebo ballots. And Bob was like, yeah, he said uh, they were doing this in Ohio in the 2004 election. And I was still in Congress. I'm paraphrasing our conversation, but and I was still in Congress and I went to Ken Blackwell, who was the secretary of state of Ohio, you know, who was preventing people from voting and throwing people off the voting rolls. And this was the 2004 election. And it was Ohio that gave the presidency in 2004 to George Bush instead of John Kerry. And. He said, I went to Ken Blackwell and I told him, you know, this is wrong and it was a violation of the law. And he said, Ken Blackwell got really pissed off at me, but wouldn't change what he was doing. And now, I mean, you've got the situation where just a few months ago, earlier this year, the Supreme Court said to the current Secretary of State of Ohio, who, as I recall, is John Husted, H-U-S-T-E-D, in this case that was brought against Husted and taken all the way to the Supreme Court, because he was saying, okay, if you haven't voted in two elections and we mail you a postcard and you don't return it, that which used to be called caging and the Republicans used to be barred from doing this by consent decree, said, if you do this, it's just fine. Right? The Supreme Court said, this is just fine. So now this is spreading all across red states. So as you know, I mean, we had Greg on the show, Christine Jordan, Martin Luther King's 92-year-old cousin was turned away at the polls at the polling place where she has been voting every year since the year her cousin was assassinated in 1968. Literally every year or every election, she has voted in that same place. And they said, oh, we don't have your name. We have no record of you. And no, you can't have a provisional ballot at first. I mean, you know, because Greg was there with a the camera crew. Eventually they gave her one. But I think that this, as I've said before, but I think it bears repeating. I think this in a big way explains redshift. I mean, in Florida, for example, the redshift was two and a half percent. The original exit polls showed Hillary Clinton winning Florida, 46.4 to Trump's 44.7, although the actual counted vote had Trump winning by 49 to 47 percent. 
So in North Carolina, the exit polls showed Clinton winning 48 to 44, but the actual count was Trump 49 to 46, a 5.9% redshift in North Carolina. Pennsylvania uh, showed Clinton beat Trump by 50 to 46, but when they counted the votes, Trump won by 48 to 47. And in Wisconsin, it was the same thing. The redshift was 5.1%. It went from Clinton winning in the exit polls, 48 to 44, to Trump beating Clinton, 48 to 47. So, you know, something is rotten in Denmark, as they say, and we need to do something about this. So there's that. I, I wanted to just share that with you broadly and get your thoughts on how we could or should be improving our voting systems. It seems to me like, you know, automatic registration. When I moved back here to Oregon and got my driver's license, I was automatically registered to vote. I had to check a box to say, don't register me. Because, you know, some people don't want to be registered if they're not citizens. Or if, for example, they're uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't vote. You know, they believe it's a religious violation. So there's that. And the other thing I wanted to talk about is the presidential primary. I want to get your opinions on this. The, there have been a couple of polls done now that show that uh, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders are kind of neck and neck in the 20s. But Beto O'Rourke is just coming out of nowhere and really ripping up the pavement. I mean, this is huge. And by the way, on Election Day, Bernie's going to be 79 years old and Joe Biden will be 77 years old. So Here's this young guy who I was talking with Lawrence O'Donnell about this last week, who so strikes me as Robert Kennedy. I don't think he's John Kennedy. I think he's Robert Kennedy. And James Higdon writing over at Politico, this long piece about how right now some of the top donors in the Republican Party who typically support the presidential candidate, we're talking about major wealthy people or large organizations, they're waiting to find out if Beto's going to jump into the race because they want to put their bets on him. I think this guy could be our next president. What do you think? A couple things that really, really impressed me about that. One was that he didn't do any polling. He just said, you know, to the consultants and things, you know, guys, I'm going to run as me and people will either vote for me or they won't. And they will either elect me or they won't. And so I don't want you poll testing the things I should be saying. And I don't want you polling to see how well I'm doing. I mean, you couldn't stop the national polls, but basically he wasn't doing polling, which gave him more money for campaigning. He also visited literally every county or maybe every precinct. That's even smaller in Texas. It was 200 and some odd, 250 something like that. I mean, he really did the work and he's passionate and he's articulate and he this guy has got something. But James Higdon is writing over at Politico. He's Barack Obama, but white. This is a phrase that one of the big fundraisers used. And he didn't mean but white in a way like, oh, that's better or anything. It was just, you know, that's kind of the major difference between the two. I think that there are considerable differences that go beyond that. And that is that, you know, Beto was not taking corporate PAC money at all. And he's campaigning as a genuine, aggressive progressive. Now, you know, Barack Obama ran a great campaign around hope and change, and we all wanted hope and change. And the Affordable Care Act was a great step forward. You know, that was the first two years. The second two years, I think, probably would have gotten comprehensive immigration reform through. It got through the Senate, but got bottled up in the House. Paul Ryan refused to even allow a vote on it, but it would have passed. And so, you know, Obama had a number of major accomplishments. That said, I think, you know, Beto O'Rourke, it's like he's like a Bernie 
without the baggage of Bernie, you know, without the socialist label and without the kind of perception of the grumpy old man, although he's not, well, Bernie can be grumpy, but, you know, remember when that bird landed on the podium and he just lit up, his face just lit up, that was just great. But Beto uh, raised, just in the third quarter of his race, he raised $38 million, all small donations. And this Politico morning questionnaire, you know, survey, the top two, of course, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. And then number three, we were all expecting it would be, you know, Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren or Cory Booker or, you know, one of the other people. Marianne Williamson, by the way, just announced that she's running for president. You can check that out on her website. You know, so there's a lot of people who are in the race. My sense is, though, Beto is electrifying. You know, he's got the right policies, but he's also got this extraordinary presentation. And if there's any lesson we've learned from Donald Trump, it's that if you know how to use the media, you, you can listening win. to the Tom Hartman program. And Beto didn't go out of his way to manipulate or use the media, but when they focused their lens on him, boy, did he come across well. Jeanette in Mount Vernon, Washington. Hey, Jeanette, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I happened to tune in just as you were saying, should, you know, Beto O'Rourke, you know, would he be a, possibly a candidate? And I went to the uh, county election here in 2016 as a Bernie delegate. Mm -hmm. And just here, I thought very, and I live in a very small rural county and uh, farming county. And the kids that were there, you know, I'm not one of them, but I can tell you every single one of the young people were there were there for Bernie. And if Democrats run a corporate candidate again, they will lose once again. That's it my was, fear of Joe Biden being the nominee, for example. In my heart, I want to think that he could have beat Donald Trump, but who knows yeah. uh, if they would have gone out and voted for Joe Biden. And I just think that if it isn't someone like Beto O'Rourke, who really is a progressive and he won't take PAC money, I think Beto O'Rourke would excite young people because if they don't go out, it's just going to be shades of 2016. I, I yeah. really don't want to see that happen. I and agree. Then, I think Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren could also excite young people. And it would be great to have a woman or or an African-American, or both, on the ticket. What Trump has taught us is that charisma, as much as I hate to use that word in association with Donald Trump, for the people who like him, he is extremely charismatic. He knows how to play to the camera. He knows how to talk to an audience. He knows how to get people excited. He's actually very talented in that regard, as much as it pains me to say so, but he wouldn't be president if he wasn't. And I don't see, see that spark as intensely with Kamala and with Elizabeth and Cory Booker and some of the other candidates. Back Have to you. you seen Michael Moore's new movie, Fahrenheit yes. 11-9? I did. You know, he, the one character in there, and I was also heartbroken that he didn't win, was Richard Ojeda. There's another guy, talk about charisma and saying it like it is, uh, unless it's someone like that, and I just don't see that in Kamala Harris. And, you know, we, we don't need another person who pretends like they are progressive, and then they get in there and they just do the same old, same old. You know, I read your book, The Crash of 2016. I fear that, that what's going to happen to this country, that there is going to be a crisis like that. And we need someone in there who is not afraid and who does not protect the bankers at the next crisis, because there's going to be one, and, and heaven help us all. Yeah, know? and that's exactly what happened, is the people got screwed in 2008, and the bankers were the ones who got bailed out. Jeanette, thank you for the call. I agree with pretty much everything you said. Maverick in Seattle. Hey, Ma a lot of calls from the West Coast today. Uh, hey, Maverick, what's on your mind today? 
You know, Tom, I think you get more calls from Washington State than any other state. Just uh, been listening. Uh, it seems we're on we're on several stations in the Seattle area and in Tacoma, and so you know it's probably we probably have more affiliates in, in Washington State than anywhere else. But anyhow, what's yeah. up? Well, if you're ever in Seattle, look me up. We'll go and have some coffee. Okay. Uh, I was thinking. Uh, I think Bernie, Bernie Sanders, and uh, that Beto O'Rourke fella, boy, he's he's impressive. Can you get him on your show? Yeah, we've reached out to him, and he was, hey, I'm just doing Texas. I'm not doing national media. Yeah, Sean says that, that was the response. And you really have to honor that. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's what Al Franken did in Minnesota, too, for the first, first couple of years after he was elected. In fact, I think for his first entire senatorial term, he said, I am only doing Minnesota media because I'm here to represent Minnesota. Yeah. But Beto may change his tune, but I'm telling you, a lot of people are knocking on his door right now, and he's the hot new you know, the shiny dangly object. And he didn't just go through a congressional election. I mean, he did that three times. He's a three-term congressman. He ran for Congress three times and was elected. He went through a senatorial election against one of the most powerful, wealthiest, and slimiest Republican senators in the United States, Ted Cruz. So if there are any skeletons in Beto's closet, they would have come out. So that, that is in and of itself, I think, a pretty solid vetting of somebody as a potential candidate. But, well, you know, I think I think you know the experience of Bernie Sanders and the freshness of Beto O'Rourke would be a great combination. It may uh, it may well be. Maverick, thanks a lot for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And by the way, I attended a dinner that Nancy Pelosi spoke at, and uh, I was so impressed. I really hope that she becomes speaker. With all the recent news about online security breaches, it's hard not to worry about where my data goes. Making an online purchase or simply accessing your email could put your private information at risk. You are being tracked online by social media sites, marketing companies, and your mobile and internet provider now that the Republicans have destroyed net neutrality. That's why I decided to take back my privacy by using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of my computer, phone, and tablet. Turning on ExpressVPN protection only takes one click. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than $7 a month. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash Tom. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com slash T-H-O-M for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash Tom to learn more. in Granite Bay, California, watching us on Free Speech TV. Hey, Perry, what's on your mind? Good morning, Tom. You know, I've been thinking about this voter suppression for a long time now, and the only thing that I can come up with is compulsory voting. Like they have in Australia. Exactly. Exactly. And then the second thing is uh, to do vote by mail across the United States. We pay our taxes by mail. There's no reason why we can't vote by mail. Yeah, I, can, I completely agree. And to have a copy. Yeah. And, and, and I, you know, I, we vote by mail here in, in, uh, in Oregon, and they did, and Washington State adopted this uh, a couple of years ago, too. And it, it's so nice. I mean, I, I think I shared the experience when the ballot came a couple of weeks before the election, and Louise and I sat down at the kitchen table and, and read through 
all the ballot uh, proposals, you know, the ballot issues that sometimes can sound very confusing and the ads very often, uh, you know, are, are very misleading, uh, the, 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 particularly the right wing ones. But they're explained in detail with, you know, the pro side and the con side. The, 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 the book was like 100 pages long. I mean, you know, the, the little manual that came with the, with the ballot. So, right. And see, I yeah. think with, we have that as well in, in California. Mm-hmm. And I do vote by mail as well. Um, but I think that there needs to be a law that, that states that you can't have these uh, provisional uh, documentation be so misleading. Yeah. You know, and, and to try to trick people into making a poor decision. Yeah, I, I, I agreed. And, 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 uh, and by the way, Perry, what do you think about the Democratic primary? Who, who would you be uh, enthusiastic about? Well, you know what? I was thinking about that. I really like Adam Schiff myself, um, huh. and I'm really um, excited about Beto. I think he'd be great. You know, wouldn't it be great if we could see maybe a Beto Abrams ticket? Wow. Yeah, that would be good. Uh, although, yeah. although you know, Kamala Harris, uh, Elizabeth Warren, and uh, Cory Booker. But- have all see, kind of been paying their dues. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah, and, but it's not even a matter of paying the dues. I think Kamala is an excellent senator, and we need somebody like her in the Senate. Right. And I've heard for years and years that Elizabeth Warren really doesn't want to do that, be president. Yeah. And Cory Booker, I just don't think, is ready for it. Mm. Uh, he's too much of... Um, uh, he's He's too volatile sometimes, you know, and and he need to be more measured. Well, like and his his, his being measured. so his being so tight with the pharmaceutical industry has hurt him really badly yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing, Tom, is I think our prisoners need to vote. Yeah, it's done in other countries, and I don't understand, you know, why we keep everybody, every citizen, from voting. In I Maine, they actually they actually distribute ballots in the jails and prisons. Um, yeah, and you know what? That needs to be done nationwide. I agree. I agree. Uh, you you shouldn't. I mean, if anything, you, you want people to feel like they have a stake in their country. You know, you don't you don't want to strip somebody of their citizenship simply because they they, they you know they, they committed a crime. That that doesn't mean that they're not a citizen anymore. They're being punished exactly. for that. Yeah. Exactly. Thanks, yeah. Tom. Thanks a lot, Perry. Great to hear from you. I appreciate the call. Thanks for watching Free Speech TV. You can support this program at patreon.com slash Tom Hartman, T-H-O-M Hartman with two N's. You're helping our team at the Tom Hartman program to air our show for free on nonprofit radio and cable stations. And what you get for that is supporter-only videos from me. You can watch, and you can watch the entire show, all three hours of our program, and past shows all three hours, anytime you want, just by becoming a member. For more information, patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. And thank you for supporting our program. One of our special videos on patreon.com slash Tom Hartman, T-H-O-M-H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, is titled, Could Civilization Be Extinct by 2026? You can only see this video by becoming a member of Patreon, which supports us in being on nonprofit radio and TV. So please help support our program. You'll also be able to watch our entire show 24-7 just by becoming a member at patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. That's patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. 
Thank you again for supporting our program. This is insane. This company called uh, Kaleo, K-A-L-E-O, has a drug, which is a form of naloxone, which is the drug that you give somebody if they've had an opiate overdose, and it shuts down the opiate receptors in the body so they, even though there's still high levels of opiates in their bloodstream, it's no longer suppressing their, their breathing and their heart. In other words, it's no longer killing them. Naloxone is the drug that literally will save your life if you've had a drug overdose, whether it's accidental, intentional, whether it was illegal or whether it was legal. It doesn't matter if it's an opiate, naloxone solves the problem. And they have this in a uh, sort of like the EpiPen things in an auto injector where you just walk up to somebody and hit them with the thing and it automatically injects the drug into them. This auto injector with a dose of naloxone in it, and then the dose of naloxone, by the way, is probably, you know, manufacturing costs got to be under a dollar. But in any case, this, this thing was selling for $575 in 2014. And they're carried by police departments, fire departments, uh, physicians' offices, emergency rooms. And frankly, a lot of parents are buying these, getting their doctor to give them a prescription and buying one to have around the house if they have kids that they suspect or know have an opiate problem. 575 bucks. They have, in the last three years, raised the price to $4,100. That's a 600% increase in price. And, and of course, for the company, profit. So the Senate has come out with a report. This investigation was led by a Republican, Rob Portman from Ohio, and a Democrat, Tom Carper from Delaware, in the United States Senate. And this is what they said in the report. And I'm quoting literally from the report. Kaleo's more than 600% increase of Evzio not only exploits a country in the middle of an opiate crisis, but also American taxpayers who fund government-run health care programs designed to be a safety net for our country's elder, elderly and most vulnerable. This is nuts. The article's in the Hill if you want to see it. And uh, another, this from MarketWatch. I, I, actually, I originally found this over at DemocraticUnderground.com. Uh, but MarketWatch is talking about how the, uh, the housing industry is, well, the, has fallen. In November, the sub-gauge of current conditions fell seven points uh, and is expected, and, and the tracker for future expectations dropped 10 points, and the gauge of buyer traffic was down eight points. So, you know, this is, this is not a good thing, basically. Uh, the NAHB, the, the Building Industry's Washington Lobby, noted in a press release that the reading of 60 is still positive, but they're, quote, customers are taking a pause. The eight-point plunge is only reminiscent of the nine-point drop just after 9-11 and a 10-point drop in early 2014. The overall reading is the lowest since mid-2016. So, you know, again, if we see a sharp drop in housing, it could be something that just begins to wipe out the entire economy. By wiping out the entire economy, I mean, you know, bang, you know, here we go. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by Goats for the Old Goat.com and Ellen Ratner's new book, Loving What You Do. And on the line with us is the famed author herself, Ellen Ratner. Hey, Ellen. Well, thank you. Bob Ney is still in India. Three Democrats are filing to block Matthew Whitaker's appointment. Yeah. Uh, it's Blumenthal of Connecticut, White House of Rhode Island, and Hirano of Hawaii. And they're going to U.S. District Court to do that. Also, 
Uh, there was a poll done on Jim Acosta. The American people are divided about that. 42% agree with the White House that they should pull his credentials. 44% disagree. The restraining order expires next Monday, and the White House said that they are going to revoke his credentials on that day. Wow. This is it's pretty this, unbelievable. This is so fundamentally inconsistent with the founding principles, you know, with the First Amendment's guarantee of no law shall be passed restraining the free press, essentially. Right. And or no action shall be taken. I mean, you know, to, to interpret it. Well, sometimes uh, I don't think our president knows the Constitution very well. I don't think he knows it at all. I would be surprised if he's ever <laughs> even read it, which is really distressing. Now, what's interesting is the elections. Orange County got seven seats. They all went to Democrats. That has not happened since the 1930s, so almost 80 years ago. There is going to be a Senate runoff in Mississippi between Mike Espy and the Republican Congresswoman. That's going to happen November 27th. That's uh, Lynch and Cindy, right? Right. Yeah. And, uh, and now she's got another scandal that just came out, too. She's taking money from white supremacists in addition well, to talking about lynching. And Mike Espy, of course, is an African-American, so, and she's white. Right. This is just such a, such a horrible But it is Mississippi, commentary. and I know the state well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Rick Scott is now the new senator from Florida. Bill Nelson, who is in his 80s, actually lost. He had finished three terms. Mm. There were 8 million votes, and somewhere between ten and 13,000 is the number of votes between the two of them, if you can believe that. I can believe that, and I'll bet that the Republican establishment in Florida had purged probably over the last uh, you know, couple of years well over a million people off the voting rolls. We know that, you know, is those kind of numbers in Georgia. And also there may have been, in fact, almost certainly were under-resourced in heavily Democratic areas. You know, they didn't get enough machines and things like that. So, Well, uh, that certainly happened in Georgia. And what we also know is that they passed overwhelmingly a rule to let felons vote. So as far as I'm concerned, the next election in 2020, Florida becomes a blue state. I think that's entirely possible. I think the 2020 election, unless something really dramatic happens, you know, like both Donald Trump and Mike Pence get impeached and Nancy Pelosi becomes president of the United States, which is like, you know, a 1% chance, but it's still a chance. But unless something really dramatic happens, I think that we're going to see a 1932 style blowout when FDR basically swept the field and the Republicans just got washed out. Well, it might be, might be wishful thinking. I'm curious what you think, by the way, Ellen. We've been talking about this well, in the show I here all day. Well, I don't about, think that Donald Trump is going to run because I don't think he's going to be on the planet, but that's just me. Yeah, well, I'm wondering what you think about Beto O'Rourke as a Democratic well, candidate. Well, I think Beto O'Rourke's a possibility. I actually also think Sherrod Brown from the great state of Ohio is a possibility. And I think that a ticket of Sherrod Brown and Beto O'Rourke, you know, with Ooh, Beto, wow. Beto as VP and Sherrod running for president, I think there are about 10, 15 years difference in them. And then Beto, you know, four or eight years down the road could run for president. I think that yeah. ticket would just kick ass. Okay. So now the ACLU had two cases, one in San Francisco, which had to do with Trump's overall opinion on sanctuary cities, et cetera. And then there was a D.C. case, which I have not heard what the results are, but it has to do whether Trump can eliminate domestic violence as a criteria uh, for entering the United States. Are these cases before the D.C. Circuit or the Supreme Court or what? They're before the D.C. Circuit, and then the one is Federal Circuit in California, which is the Ninth District, and right. they're pretty liberal. Yeah, the Ninth Circuit, yeah. Well, it'll be interesting. We'll see what happens with these.
Now, Donald Trump is on to your fired, and it looks like he wants to fire the Homeland Security chief, uh, Kirsten Nelson, and there is some rumors still that he wants to fire the White House chief of staff. Well, she, she was John Kelly's protege, wasn't she? Yes, she was. So it and may well be. Going. I think that the president is going to fire the White House chief of staff. Not a smart move. Yeah, yeah. If there's ever a time that he needed somebody stable in that position, it's right now. Although John Kelly, I mean, he's the one who came out and said that separating children from their families is a great thing to do because it'll discourage immigrants. I mean, well, what's he going to say, right, at that point? Yeah, but apparently he was an, an enthusiastic supporter of the policy. And, and of course, it was implemented by Kirsten Nielsen, his assistant. So I won't cry for their departure, but I, I, either, but I worry for the nation. I do worry for the nation. Helen, thank you. I've never endorsed a weight loss product before Riduzone. Why Riduzone? I've seen firsthand how well it worked for my wife. With the wedding coming up, Louise wanted to lose a little weight. She read about university research and how one molecule helps regulate appetite. Riduzone is designed to boost levels of that one molecule along with your metabolism so you stop craving the wrong foods and you burn calories faster. Once her appetite and cravings were under control, she said losing weight was easy. She has more energy on her hikes and she looks amazing. Listen, when diet and exercise aren't enough and you want to lose the weight you've been struggling to lose, get non-prescription FDA accepted Riduzone. While supplies last, use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive 30% off plus free shipping. Go to tryriduzone.com. That's T-R-Y, try R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. TryRidUZone.com. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive 30% off, plus free shipping. TryRidUZone.com. That's T-R-Y, try, R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. TryRidUZone.com. Promo code TOM. Tom Hartman here with you, and on the line with us, our old friend Lori Wallach, the executive director of Public Citizens Global Trade Watch, tradewatch.org, or citizen.org slash trade. And Laurie, welcome back to the program. So a couple of headlines here, NAFTA 2.0, the deadline is right after Thanksgiving. I think it's November 30th, uh, number one. Number two, Donald Trump has offered farmers a $12 billion bailout, but it looks like less than a billion of that's been distributed. And a lot of farmers are really hurting. And this is a consequence of his trade things. And this uh, inappropriate, insulting protections for LGBTQ workers in this new trade pack, a bunch of Republicans in the House are saying, we won't sign on to this legislation if it protects gay workers, which is uh, awful. But anyhow, let me th toss those at you. And what's going on with all this stuff? Well, first item is, yes, the NAFTA 2.0 text that got released on September 30th is heading to be signed on November 30th. That's under the fast track rules. That's the 90 days of waiting. And the agreement that's going to be signed, though it has some important improvements, still, if enacted as is, wouldn't stop the job outsourcing or raise wages. And there's some new provisions that were added to it that could lock in high medicine prices. Oh, geez. So basically, November 30th is when phase two of the NAFTA replacement campaign starts, because now with the Democrats as a majority there is going to be ongoing work to try and improve the deal, which, to be fair, the U.S. Trade Representative, Robert Lighthizer, has been working with the unions since the text came out to try and figure out how to improve the enforcement of the labor standards. But there's some other stuff, too. This is actually being done with Congress. Are you actually hopeful that, that something good is going to come out of this, or is it, you know, we've gone from insanely terrible to merely terrible? <laughs> 
So the story is that actually they made some big improvements. They mm. took out most of the investor state dispute settlement system, which is enormous. Right, the private corporate courts, basically. Totally removed ISDS between the U.S. and Canada. And, Tom, that's a big deal because all but one of those outrageous corporate attacks and environmental laws have been U.S. corporations attacking Canadian policies. Hmm. So almost $400 million has been paid out. All those environmental ones have been U.S. firms attacking Canada. So getting rid of that, big honking deal. Yep. And with respect to Mexico, there's a big rollback in those rules. There's a, an exception that's got to get fixed. But mainly, there are some important improvements, but... Though they're improved labor standards, they're not really sufficiently enforceable to make a difference on the ground. And then some really bad stuff relating to medicine patents, expanding big pharma monopolies got added. That stuff's got to come out. Mm -hmm. To answer the bottom line of your question, if we can make the environmental and labor standards subject to swift and certain enforcement, Mm -hmm. we can get rid of that outrageous pharma stuff and make a couple other important improvements. Actually, the agreement's going to be worth having. So, and you think that the Democratic Congress might might force this? Sorry, go ahead. You think a Democratic Congress uh, or House might force this? Well, I think the reality is the only agreement that's going to get passed is one that the Democrats in the House will approve. Sure. So that leverage means we actually have the opportunity to force improvements in the agreement that at a minimum, at least, could pass the do-no-further-harm test, which is right. to say it could stop some good, of the serious good. ongoing damage. I mean, this ain't the transformative, progressive, NAFTA replacement, new model of a trade agreement you and I have been talking about for decades. Yeah, this isn't what Sherrod Brown would write, for but example. If, or, yeah, or you would write. But yeah. if these improvements are made, this could be actually something worth having, because if it could stop the ongoing serious damage mm-hmm. of job outsourcing, pressure downward on wages. I mean, there is language in there, if made enforceable, that would transformationally improve labor rights in Mexico and give our brothers and sisters in Mexico a real chance to have independent unions and fight for higher wages. And with Amelo coming, he's burning in Mexico. Exactly. So, well, I don't know if he's burning in Mexico. He's more of a populist than a progressive, but on this mm-hmm. issue... Yeah. He believes in the right thing. So what I'm saying basically is there's a lot more work to be done. And if folks care about this, they should get engaged. There is a great ReplaceNAFTA.org campaign page that lays out how to work with your members of Congress to demand these additional improvements. So we get the agreement to a place where it deserves to go into effect. And the test is... Is it going to actually stop the outsourcing, raise wages, and it certainly can't raise medicine prices, or it's a non-starter? So that that is the piece of work going forward. That's great. Um, I, I, we've talked. I believe we've talked about this before. The the fact that uh, you know you and I and 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 basically up until 1992, the entire Democratic Party were were all in favor of tariffs of protectionist. Uh, trade legislation, which is what built this country. I mean, they were put into place in 1793 as a consequence of Alexander Hamilton's 1791 report on manufacturers and built this country. And in fact, tariffs paid for the entire cost of the federal government right up to the Civil War and half the cost of the federal government right up to World War One. And then Donald Trump came along, stole this, demo, you know, what used to be the Democratic thing and campaigned on it. And people love it. But there still are a lot of Democrats who understand this. You know, Bernie Sanders, Sherrod Brown, Sherrod Brown just won Ohio. If 
by six, eight points when the Democrat running for governor lost the state, you know, by a couple of points. So this is potent political stuff. But it seems to me that Donald Trump is setting aside NAFTA. Donald Trump is trying to define our trade policy by, particularly with China, by executive order using national security as the rubric or as the excuse. And that will only last until he leaves office, you know, unless the next president is completely in agreement with it. I can't imagine any company saying, you know, let's invest $500 million in building a factory in the United States and stop manufacturing in China based on these tariffs that Trump put into place that are going up to 25%, I correct me if I'm wrong, in, in December. I don't see any company saying we're going to do that based on just a two-year window. Uh, you know, Trump is not running this stuff through Congress. Do I have that right? And if so, what should we do? Well, it's a really interesting state of affairs because it's not just the Democrats who have taken a rather corporatist view of trade because most of the Democrats actually have taken the people's view of trade. But there's a block of them, and certainly the presidential Democrats have been indistinguishable from the re Republican presidents on their trade policies. But the Congress. With the exception of Bernie. Well, the presidents. Yeah. There have been presidents. Oh, presidents. I see. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I thought you were talking about candidates, yeah. No, I'm talking about, I'm talking about Obama and, and Clinton, who right. as presidents did the exact same stuff that Republicans did on trade. Right. But yes, you're spot on with respect to Bernie. And I think some of the people, the senators who are thinking about running for president now also have a progressive view on trade. The problem is the congressional Democrats have tended to be more critical of the status quo. The congressional Republicans have been lock, stock, and barrel for the status quo. And in fact, one of the few issues on which there's been any willingness to challenge Trump by the Republicans in Congress is on his China tariffs. Right. So the reason, Tom, in part, none of this is going through Congress is because it's really hard to get a majority to actually change trade policy in Congress. Now, we have a chance with the NAFTA renegotiation and maybe with the right kind of China trade policy going forward, the NAFTA fight's kind of the test. Mm. With the Democrats in the House, the Republicans might be forced along. But I think that part of the reason the president's done the approach that he has with respect to China is when the Republicans were a majority in both chambers of Congress, there was no prospect of doing anything in Congress on trade. Right. And the problem with how the president's done what he did through executive authority is it's been, frankly, kind of you know, bass backwards which is it hasn't been strategically rolled out. The targeting hasn't been very smart. So we've had a lot of collateral damage that wasn't necessary, even as the general principle of using the leverage of access to our market and the power of putting up tariffs to stop cheating goods from coming in is the right set of tools, right. the way it's been implemented has been... Well, and Trump has also politicized it in ways that actually don't even make sense, you know, criticizing Democrats for opposing him when Republicans are actually the ones who are opposing him. I'm curious, Laurie, what, what you think. Was I right that Trump's tariffs, China tariffs, are going to go from either 10 or 15 percent up to 25 percent in the next month or so? Uh, you are right as a technical matter. That's what's supposed to happen. But... A thing to watch is on the 30th, as well as the NAFTA signing, there will be the G20. This is the 30th of November. Exactly. Okay. Did I say not? Yeah, November yeah. 30th. Yeah. There will be the G20 meeting in Buenos Aires, and that will be at the G20, on the side of the G20. There will be a meeting between the U.S. and China that's supposed to be the next big discussion of what happens with these tariffs. So... 
Unfortunately, part of the administration, led by Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, is trying to make a very transactional deal of not only won't we bring the tariffs up to 25%, we'll get rid of some of the existing tariffs. If China, you'll just buy a little more of the stuff you can buy anyway, like LNG and soy. And then we'll make a deal. We'll back off. There's we'll declare victory and go home, in other words. The people who want to basically give up. Yeah. Then there's another part of the administration led by USTR Lighthizer who's saying, not so fast. Unless and until China changes some of these structural structural behaviors of subsidizing exports, of keeping out U.S. trade, of creating a whole set of privileged China 2025 sectors of the economy mm-hmm. to dominate the world and manipulate in any number of different ways how those companies operate in our country and whether or not there is any trade in those sectors coming into China until there's some big structural changes on currency misalignments, then no, these tariffs stay in place. And that fight is still playing out in the administration. So if it was USTR and Treasury Secretary Hartman, yes, the tariffs would go up to 25%. Under this fight, it's unclear. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Laura, you always enlighten me. Thank you so much for dropping by. Thank you for having me on. Lori Wallach, the executive director of Public Citizens Global Trade Watch, tradewatch.org, the website. Lori, if you're still on the line, what was that other website about NAFTA? ReplaceNAFTA.org. Thank www.replacenafta.org. you. ReplaceNAFTA.org. There you go. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I've been using the Muse EEG neurofeedback headband. I'm not sure that's exactly what they call it, but... The website is choosemuse.com. It's a little headband you put on, um, just sets over your ears, sort of like a pair of glasses, only it goes across the forehead. And it actually reads your brain waves, your EEG, and feeds it back to you through a free app on your, on your smartphone into your earphones, into your, into your ears, as the sounds of weather. And as your brain gets more agitated, the weather gets louder, and as your brain gets calmer, and more peaceful and more meditative, the weather gets softer and the waves get softer. And you start hearing little birds when you're having really cool brainwave activity that's associated with the way that good meditators do it. It's a meditation instruction tool. And meditation is such an incredible thing. It, it you know helps concentration, focus, lowers blood pressure. I've been using this for about four or five months now. And I have noticed in my daily writing, because I've, I've got a 10-book contract right now and I'm writing so much every single day, I used, to, I used to sit down to write and say, okay, I'm going to write for an hour. And half of that hour was spent with distractions. I'd think of this and think of that. And, oh, I need to check my email. Oh, I got to do that. And, and I would constantly distract myself and then eventually come back to it. Since I've started using the Muse, now when these distractions pop up, just like they do in my meditation, I've learned how to, just like in my meditation, say, oh, that's a distraction. I'll let go of that. I'll come back to that later. I'm going to get back to writing. And now, instead of getting... 30 minutes worth of work done in an hour of sitting and writing. I'm getting 50 or 60 minutes of work done in an hour of sitting and writing. It's really extraordinary. The, you can learn all about it at choosemuse, M-U-S-E, choosemuse.com. And if you order using the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get $30 off. So check it out. It's great. Choosemuse.com. Our book for today in the Tom Harmon Book Club is uh, Proof of Collusion, How Trump Betrayed America by Seth Abramson. This is from the chapter one, page 14. 
Up until 1987, Donald Trump was not regarded as a particularly political public figure. However, in 1987, he published The Art of the Deal and took a trip to Moscow, one or both of which sent him in the direction of a political career. Trump's trip to Moscow in 1987 comes at the invitation of Russia's ambassador to the United States, Yuri Dubinin. In Moscow, Trump stays at the Lenin Suite of the Hotel National, which, as Jonathan Chait of New York Magazine notes, certainly would have been bugged in 1987. Trump holds meetings on the possible construction of a Trump hotel with Soviet officials. Coming away from the meetings, certain that the officials are eager to do business with him. On returning to the United States, Trump spends nearly $100,000 on politically charged newspaper ads attacking American allies like Japan and Saudi Arabia for spending too little on their own defense. He urges America to, quote, tax these wealthy nations, end quote, and shortly thereafter makes a high-profile trip to New Hampshire, the sort of trip that is often considered a prelude to a presidential bid. Trump's 1987 bid for a Trump hotel in Moscow falls through, according to the Washington Post, only because Trump was, quote, preoccupied with other business projects. Once Trump's companies recover from a string of bankruptcies in 91 and 92, he returns his attention to the Russian market. In 96, he returns to Moscow with Howard Lorber, one of his two closest friends, according to the Post. Together, they scout locations for an office tower and eventually find a location for the tower and a prospective Russian business partner. Trump announces plans for a Trump International branded building in November of 96. The deal will see him investing $250 million in licensing his name to two buildings. We have an understanding we'll be doing it, Trump says. At the press conference promoting the deal, he says he doesn't think he's ever been as impressed with the potential of a city as I have been with Moscow. However, Trump has a problem. American banks will no longer lend him money, citing his track record for paying back only pennies on the dollar, what the banks called the Donald risk. In 1997, though, no construction has begun on Trump's hotel hope for Moscow projects. The New Yorker is writing about the breadth of Trump's hopes for Moscow investment and business connections. Trump's plan for the expansion of his real estate portfolio into Russia go well beyond a single Trump International Hotel. Trump envisions a much larger series of investments. He tells The New Yorker, it would be skyscrapers and hotels. We're working with the local government, the mayor of Moscow, and the mayor's people. So far, they've been very responsive. As Trump's 1996 plans finally fall through for good, Russia begins a period of political upheaval that sees the nation led by five successive prime ministers appointed by Boris Yeltsin over a 15-month period in 98 and 99. The last of these prime ministers is a man by the name of Vladimir Putin. Putin, the former first deputy chairman, uh, the equivalent of deputy mayor of St. Petersburg, develops a fondness for Miss St. Petersburg, Oksana Fedorova, sometime before she is crowned Miss Russia in 2001. It's widely known that he has a picture of her in his office. After Fedorova wins the 2001 Miss Russian pageant, rumors abound, spurred in part by the presence of Putin's domestic intelligence service, the FB, FSB, acting as security at the competition, that the pageant has been rigged so that Fedorova will win. Local media say that either the pageant was corrupt or its organizers knew instinctively it would be unwise, not politically correct, according to the Telegraph, to let anyone but Fedorova win. In winning the Miss Russia pageant, Fedorova becomes Russia's entrant to the 2002 Miss Universe pageant, an international competition owned by Donald Trump. Though the 20, 2002 pageant is scheduled to take place in Puerto Rico, anticipation for the event is high in Russia because of Putin's adoration for Fedorova and because no Russian woman has ever won the Miss Universe pageant in its half century of continuous operation. At the time of the 2002 Miss Universe pageant, Fedorova's publicly acknowledged boyfriend is Vladimir 
Golubev, a St. Petersburg crime boss heavily involved in the construction industry. But the scuttlebutt in Moscow is that Fedorova is actually with a different Vladimir. Uh, in a May 2002 article published immediately after the 2002 Miss Universe contest in Moscow calls Fedorova Putin's girl. There's substantial press attention on the pageant in Moscow as Fedorova wins the competition and makes pageant history as the first Miss Universe from Russia to win the contest. On November 2nd, 2017, an eyewitness to the judging process at the 2002 Miss Universe contest will contact this author to say that the contest was rigged. After the eyewitness's identity had been verified, the eyewitness recounts the following. After there are only 10 contestants left in the 2002 Miss Universe pageant, an elimination process that Trump directly participates in this point in the pageant's history, Trump addresses the pageant's celebrity judges and indicates that he wants Miss Russia crowned Miss Universe. The source reports Trump saying, quote, there's definitely clearly one woman out there who's head and shoulders above the rest. She's the one I'd vote for. Given the context of the statement, Trump issuing his formal instructions to the judges as they prepared for the conclusion of the pageant, as well as his demeanor while speaking, the eyewitness asserts that Trump, quote, told the judges who to vote for, adding that a subsequent conversation among the celebrity judges revealed that several had the same impression. The judges did, in fact, vote for Miss Russia, who therefore, who thereby becomes Miss Universe until her dethroning 120 days later for failure to faithfully execute the duties of her office. The contest celebrity judges are later told by parties affiliated with the pageant that Fedorova has been dethroned because of unspecified criminal contact, proof of collusion. So on the line with us is Seth Abramson, the author of Proof of Collusion, How Trump Betrayed America. Just an absolutely extraordinary book. Seth, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me, Tom. It's great having you on. You you have produced a masterpiece, and it's going to be fascinating when Mueller's report finally comes out to uh, do a side-by-side -side comparison. Give us a summary of you know what you learned, and I know you've been doing researching this forever. What you learned, what brought you to write this book, and what people will learn from reading the book. So what the book is, just so people know, is a curation of hundreds of major media investigative reports from around the world. Uh, dating back to the 1980s, and that curation puts all of those reports into a single narrative so we can see the whole timeline dating back 30 years of Trump-Russia collusion. And one of the things that you discover when you look at that timeline is that it's clear that there is a quid pro quo relationship between the Trumps and the Trump organization and Russian businessmen and oligarchs, and ultimately oligarchs who are agents of the Kremlin to receive hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, to the Trump Organization through, in some cases, clandestine, in some cases, hidden through shell company, in some cases, open deals with the Trump Organization. And in exchange for all of that money, all of that largesse, what the Kremlin received was a presidential candidate with a historically pro-Russia foreign policy that stood to gain the Kremlin trillions of dollars over the next decade and have no positive benefit whatsoever for the United States. So despite Donald Trump's claims of no ties to Russia, of having no indebtedness to the Russians, and having a foreign policy that merely came from his own uh, illumination as to what was appropriate for geopolitics, 
in fact, there appears to be a, a quid pro quo. Yeah. If you look back on American politics, you know, John Adams, after the XYZ affair, when he ran against Thomas Jefferson in the election of 1800, was referring back to the purported attempt by French officials to bribe three Americans to operate against American interests. And he basically accused Jefferson of colluding with France, you know, colluding with a foreign power. The American people didn't buy it and Jefferson won the election. And frankly, I think that was the last time before Trump that there was even the argument, the suggestion that somebody running for president was influenced by or under the influence of a foreign power. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong on that. So you could argue that this is bad politically. You could argue that this is even treason. Is this illegal? Well, let me say this. When you say treason, I think we could say that there is a small T, meaning a non-statutory treason, in the sense that this is treacherous or traitorous behavior that is clearly not patriotic or in the best interest of the United States. But there is also criminal behavior here. The Trump-Russia investigation ultimately is not a collusion case, capital C, because, of course, collusion is only a federal crime in the context of antitrust law. But collusion, small c, just the lay term, meaning a clandestine agreement between two parties that is some sort of a transgression and therefore must be clandestine. That's a conspiracy, Uh, right? Well, underneath that umbrella, you do have conspiracy, but you have several dozen other federal statutes. So I think that what we will ultimately learn and what proof of collusion, I think, makes pretty clear is that we have here a bribery case, which is, of course, a federal crime. We have a conspiracy regarding computer crimes. We have aiding and abetting. We have money laundering. We have Foreign Agent Registration Act violations, possible RICO violations, illegal solicitation of foreign donations, wire fraud, bank fraud, and then, of course, the whole second half of the investigation, which is crimes after the fact, such as obstruction, witness tampering, perjury, lying to Congress, making false statements, falsification on federal forms, and so on. So, yes, this is, in fact, a criminal case, as well as small-t treachery against the United States. We're talking with Seth Abramson, the author of Proof of Collusion, How Trump Betrayed America. Seth is a former criminal defense attorney and criminal investigator. He teaches digital journalism, legal advocacy, and cultural theory now at the University of New Hampshire and uh, the columnist for Newsweek. Seth Abramson, A-B-R-A-M-S-O-N dot net is, is the website, and you can tweet him at Seth Abramson. And I have retweeted so many of your tweets over the last year or so, Seth, as you've been obviously working on this book and doing this research. Do you believe that your book makes a strong enough case. You know, there was a book that came out back in 2005 or thereabouts by uh, Vince Bugliosi titled The Case for the Impeachment of George W. Bush, or words to that effect. And he believed, he asserted on this program, in fact, several times, that his book actually detailed from public records factual information that indicated crimes committed by George W. Bush, mostly around the Iraq War, and that he could be prosecuted for those. He passed away, unfortunately, and uh, nobody ever prosecuted George Bush. But do you believe that just with what's in your book, if if Robert Mueller had never existed, with what's in your book, is there enough to uh, both impeach and prosecute Donald Trump or the, the entire Trump crime family? Well, let me say that, like Bugliosi's book, my book is a public records book. So everything, uh, virtually everything, 99% of what's in the book is simply taken from investigative reports that have been published by reliable media outlets. In terms of impeachment, as you know, Tom, it's a political process rather than, strictly speaking, a legal process. I think we already have impeachable offenses in the case of Donald Trump 
simply by looking at emoluments and the emoluments clause of the Constitution, which, of course, is not really covered in this book, but that's a separate topic. But we do also have impeachable offenses in the nature of obstruction, obstruction of justice, which is covered in this book. And I do think the book in and of itself and the public information that we have is sufficient to say that the president obstructed justice. Now, in terms of what's in the book on the collusion question, a lot of people want the sort of Hollywood collusion moments where you open a door and Donald Trump is sitting at a computer hacking the DOD with Vladimir Putin on his lap. Unfortunately, that's not the reality of legal cases in the United States. It's not the reality of this case, which is the most far-ranging, complex federal criminal investigation of our lifetimes. But what you do have in this book is sufficient information that if you put it before a jury, and the information in this book is information that's testimonial, documentary, that could be admitted in court, if you put that information in front of a jury, it would blow their hair back. And yes, they would believe that crimes had been committed here, and those crimes would be of an impeachable nature. Having said that, as you know, Tom, the general legal opinion is that you cannot indict and try in court a sitting president, or at best you could maybe indict them and not try them. So I don't think we'll see a criminal prosecution of Donald Trump while he's in office, but I do think that we will sometime in 2019 see the beginning of an impeachment process. As a result of your research and your publication of this book, Seth, have any state attorneys general reached out to you or any federal officials or people who may be federal officials in a Democratic administration reached out to you about collaborating or using your research for that kind of a purpose? Well, I can say that in general terms, Tom, in the two years that I've been doing this research, I started in December 2016, that a lot of people, both in and out of government, have reached out to me. A lot of people in government, but also people out of government, I should say, who are in journalism, for instance, Mm -hmm. in major media, who have reached out to me. I don't want to give the impression that Robert Mueller doesn't have the information that's in this book. I believe that Robert Mueller does have the information that's in this book, but many of those in the American public do not because Robert Mueller so far has run a pretty tight ship. There hasn't been a lot of leaks since he began his investigation in 2017. But I would also say that Robert Mueller has many times more than what I have, even though, as I said, what I have in this book, I do think is substantial enough for criminal prosecution. And by the way, I want to emphasize, we're not just talking about Donald Trump here. We're talking about 10 to 20 individuals, including family members of Donald Trump, who have criminal liability, as we're seeing with the report saying that Donald Trump Jr. may well soon be indicted. But Robert Mueller has what's in the book, even though the American people in many cases have not seen it because it's reporting from all around the world. And Robert Mueller has much more than that. Uh, So I think that we can expect not a report as soon as people are suggesting, but within the next few months. That's that's fascinating. Seth Abramson, the book Proof of Collusion, How Trump Betrayed America. Seth, you're doing great work here. Thanks so much for dropping by today and for writing this book. Thank you for having me. I recommend it to anybody who wants to know what the hell is actually going on with this man in the White House. You're listening to Tom Hartman. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Democracy really, I mean, the whole idea of democracy is the demos. It's us, right? The people. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 